0: On air, online, on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Hello, it's nice to be with you today. Let's take another dive into the wine industry and look at the reasons why one expert believes more vineyards should convert to organic. We'll also dip our toes into some boots. That aren't quite like the ugg boots we've come to know.
2: The hardest thing for us to sell have been our wallaby skins, so we launched on our on the market our wallaby fur ugg boots, which, in a moment of marketing brilliance, we call wugs.
1: And we'll meet a former accountant turned farmer who's become a leading figure in the dairy industry, and we'll visit a startup company that's been turning farm waste into delicious and healthy. Ish. Snacks.
0: <laughs> wow, that's crunchy. Very crunchy. So this is um, created from waste stuff on the farm that doesn't meet specs or there's no market. Is that is that appealing? That's
3: very cool. I like that. <laughs> I like not wasting food.
0: Lots of variety on the show today, but
1: first we go to New South Wales and a new case of Varroa this time in the Hunter Valley, is raising big questions about the origin of the outbreak in Australia. The hive was infested by the mites when bees were moved before the outbreak was discovered at the port of Newcastle. David Claughton reports.
0: Varroa is a devastating pest that can decimate hives and reduce honey production significantly. Genomic testing shows that the mites originated in Central America, but it's not clear how they got into Australia. This latest case has proven that the port of Newcastle probably wasn't the point of entry. The Department of Primary Industries Incident Controller, Lloyd King, told Dan Cox and Jenny Bates on ABC Newcastle about this latest case.
4: We're still trying to determine exactly what's occurred. Uh, but we believe that, um, like, a, this person has a close relationship with a, with a, a previously known infested premises. Um, now that we've actually gone out there and and tested that person's hives again and they've turned up to be infested, we've we found out there are actually hives that were moved from that known infested premises in the last eight or nine months that we didn't previously know about.
5: So does that mean that there was varroa at that first property before the detection at the port of Newcastle?
4: Oh, oh yes. Um, so our, our sentinel hives in Newcastle in late June uh, detected the incursion. Um, we've since been swimming upstream to try and work out where that incursion originated. So we we know that the first place that we found it was in the port of Newcastle. We're still pulling together how it got to that site where we first found it and then from where it's came. So the, right. the more surveillance we do on the purple zone and uh, the more information we've gathered from the red zone through interviewing people gives us a very firm idea that that definitely wasn't the point of entry. Um, yeah, so ongoing surveillance will actually fill in the picture for us.
1: Right. That has changed my impression of this whole situation, um, that we, are, we now know that before the 22nd of June, there was Varroa in the Hunter before it was identified at the Port of Newcastle
5: on the 22nd of June. So do we know where it came from yet? Or is it likely to have come from interstate? Or how does this happen?
4: Um, well, we know it's not likely to have come from interstate because all of our, our other state uh, partners have also been doing a lot of surveillance as well. So we we know that it somehow got into the... You know the, the the lower hunter sometime in the last nine months um and we, we actually have a genetic sequence of the mite that tells us that it originated from somewhere around central america because this thing originally came from sort of japan korea that part of the world but uh yeah we still haven't pieced together exactly what the date was of the entry but the more surveillance we do and the more cooperation we get from the bee industry the more confident we are that we've actually got the thing contained and we're well on the way to eradicating it. New South Wales
0: Apiarists Association President Steve Fuller told Kim Honan this is a worrying case, but he hasn't given up on eradicating the pests from Australia.
6: At least we know it's a, it's a traceable link, which is which is good. The sad part, though, is this has already been surveillanced already with alcohol washes, and now it's actually showing up positive to so do So, it makes me wonder, or it makes the industry really scared of how many other ones out there with alcohol washes that have been cleaned that now need to go back through and have motor strips in us.
7: Yeah, how concerning is that for the industry?
6: That's really concerning. The only thing that could be in our favour is we have the purple zone, which is a surveillance, so you're not allowed to bring them into the blue zone. So if we do find it in the purple zone, which my understanding is this was in a purple zone, then we've got a chance of keeping it contained.
7: What does this mean for the varroa mite response? Is it time to stop controlling this parasite and let it become endemic?
6: At this point in time, I, I think it's still a bit too early to move to management, but it's going to make them rethink the whole thing, whole system.
0: The state's agriculture minister, Dougald Saunders, told Michael Condon the government is extending the red zone for controlling the outbreak and more bees will have to be euthanised.
8: It's not bees that are flying between right. hives necessarily. It's normally that people have moved a hive and it may not show up straight away as being infected but that's why we have to keep doing that testing. and, and now, that's why in some of the areas that will um, we'll come back, it'll take a couple of years because we need to keep retesting and making sure that nothing has slipped through the net. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, not unexpected, given it is linked uh, to movements from an original, uh, original infected premises. That now means that there's an extended red zone around that particular area, which will incorporate some, some more beekeepers that will now have to have hives euthanised. What it does show is that the surveillance that we're doing works, the the sticky mats we're using, the alcohol washes we're doing. um, It's not a significant infestation at this particular site. It's It's a small one, but it just does show we need to keep doing what we have been doing.
1: And that was Dougald Saunders ending that report by David Claughton. A new set of hands will take on the helm of one of Tasmania's peak agricultural bodies. Kate Gofton, who lives on a little dairy farm near Scottsdale in the northeast, will be stepping into the role of chair of Dairy TAS after making a switch from accounting into farming about 13 years ago. She says she's ready for the next challenge.
9: We run a dairy farm, my husband and I, uh, near Scottsdale. And we milk about 620 cows. Uh, I've been on the farm uh, working with him for probably about the last uh, 13 years. Prior to that, I was an accountant in the local government and recently appointed chair of Dairy tap.
5: You said you worked as an accountant before that. Why switch over to farming? That's an unusual move.
9: Well, I guess it wasn't by choice because, uh, you know, I've had this conversation a little bit recently. Um, people always refer to the female as being the farmer's wife and it's only recently occurred to me that I'm not actually a farmer's wife, I am a farmer. Uh, and um, there was no obvious transition to that role. It was more about, um, it, it was at the time of my life where I was having my third child that I decided that it was getting a bit too difficult trying to balance motherhood and a career. Uh, and decided my effort was probably better spent at home and on the farm and didn't have a clue about farming or milking cows or animals. Um, I don't milk the cows. I have been fairly particular about choosing what I get involved in and uh, lent much to using my accounting and business skills to further develop not only our farm, but to become involved in the wider dairy industry.
5: Wow, so you um, you traded one busy job for another busy job, essentially.
9: Pretty much, that would be correct.
5: <laughs> <laughs> You've um, recently taken on the position of, of Chair of Dairy Tasmania. Why take that role? Uh,
9: I took on the role of Chair, uh, spent the previous 12 months as Deputy Chair, and it was part of, uh, probably part of our succession plan as a board, I guess, is... Um, you take on that deputy chair role that the intention is probably that you want to develop your leadership to a point that you will then step up. Um, we've chosen to do that as a group and our previous chair is still on our board for another year so we're very much about that supporting and developing other people to increase their leadership capabilities and I guess on a personal level I've been doing a lot of uh, work myself. Um, with the intention of trying to uh, learn more about my own leadership capabilities and to develop a skill set that enables me to step more and more into those roles.
5: So you started, you said 13 years ago, you didn't know anything about dairy farming really and you've transitioned into a leader in the industry. Did you ever expect something like that to happen?
9: No, and the story that most people tell is that it begins with a shoulder tap and um, it progresses from there. Uh, You start out from a position where you don't really think you know anything and you don't believe in your own uh, ability to learn that information or be able to offer very much value. And then I suppose it's that personal transition into believing in yourself again. And particularly for women, I think it's a really... um, It's an opportunity to feel that you have something of value to give back to uh, society in general and that you find a place where you can contribute back to your wider community.
5: What are your plans for the role?
9: Uh, I don't have, you know, in my first 12 months, as I said, we still have our previous um, chair on our board, so I plan to spend a bit of time just uh, learning the ropes and I've got pretty big shoes to fill because Angelique Korkashek was our previous chair and uh, did a fabulous job. So I just want to learn a bit more about the uh, logistics of running meetings and that sort of stuff and and then probably move into more of uh, the vision of what I'd like to achieve. I'm particularly interested in the positive promotion of our industry and getting people to recognise what an important part of regional and rural communities, the uh, agricultural industry and particularly dairy, the part they play in that. Uh, I think it's often understated and in a lot of uh, regional and rural areas of Tasmania, agriculture may be the only industry left that's still surviving and and doing really well. I think we need to celebrate that a bit more.
5: What are some of the biggest challenges that the industry is facing into the future and and how do you see Dairy dairy Tas helping?
9: I'd say some of the biggest challenges for our industry revolve around social licence, um, animal welfare, climate change carbon emissions um and that sort of stuff and i think the part that dairy Tas has to play in that is critical and i think a lot of things that uh, the main thing that a lot of farmers don't realize is that a lot of work's already being done on this stuff and we need to be on the front foot and we need to be proactive but a lot of the work's actually being done at a higher level at dairy australia and all those resources are actually there so i see dairy taz's responsibility responsibilities is being the conduit to get that information from Dairy Australia at a higher level down to the farm-on-farm practicality and getting farmers to understand the
1: importance of some of those issues. And that was Kate Cofton, brand-new Chair of Dairy Taz, speaking to reporter Meg Powell. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 has sprung to life. With the way the cost of living's going, a record number of Tasmanian families will rely on the funds raised by the ABC Giving Tree to be able to spread a little joy this Christmas. Donate now at abc.net.au slash givingtree and closer to Christmas, we'll distribute your generosity to our partner charities. G'day, it's Helen Shield from your afternoon on ABC Radio Hobart. Please donate now abc.net.au slash givingtree. tree.
0: It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Let's go to the National Export Awards now. And the infant milk formula company, Bubs Australia, has taken out a national award for Best Australian Exporter. Bubs cracked the US market this year when there was a dramatic shortage of infant formula there, and they have a significant footprint. In the Chinese market, David Claughton again spoke to CEO and founder Kirsty Carr Carless- this morning after she received the award in Canberra last night. It's
7: uh, quite overwhelming, really, with all those wonderful uh, Australian businesses in the room, but uh, we did. Bubs Australia won the Agri Agribusiness Food and Beverage Award um, category, but also the overall exporter of the year. That yeah. is a big
0: night. Does it come with a huge it's- cash prize?
7: Yeah, no, I don't know about that, but it comes with a very beautiful um, Dinosaur Designs um, Award, so uh, a trophy, and uh, we have two of them, but they're the nicest trophies I've ever seen, so that's got to be oh. added to the pool room.
0: All right, so that uh, it was a big night for you. Were there, were there celebrations afterward?
7: Absolutely, yes, we had a, uh, we continued on and, and celebrated at Parliament House, but we also came back and had a little sneaky bottle of of champagne between the, uh, between the executive leadership team to sort of reflect on the year that's just been.
0: It has been an extraordinary year, wasn't it? Because, because you were, you, you ended up filling this massive gap in the American market.
7: It was, and uh no, we really, uh, we really, um, I guess, had got our, you know, delivered our first chapter of growth in in China, and uh, everything had gone from strength to strength there after initial, you know, a very significant disruption in the early onset of the pandemic, and then in the last year we really saw an opportunity to accelerate our entrance into the American market, and uh, you know that was quite a unique period of time um, for the American infant formula. Category as it was spiraling into a crisis with uh, with a shortage of infant formula. So, so, so you were um, the
0: first company, I think globally weren't you to be given accreditation we were the first
7: company globally to uh, to apply and i think that's the true testament of, of bub's uh family's team's um agility so we were the first application in the world to be admitted and we were the second um, manufacturer in the world to um to uh be um i guess accepted into the enforcement discretion policy so
0: so how did now- that play out because i remember speaking to you you know when that was you know that when you achieve that result, but we, but did you end up selling a lot of infant formulas to for the U.S.?
7: Yeah, absolutely. We've just um, sent over our one millionth tin, actually. So um, it's been a quite a, a a big couple of months, and we've uh, we've sold a large majority of that inventory that we've sent to the U.S. Uh, into all of the sort of big box retailers over there. So we're now ranged in six and a half thousand stores across forty two states, uh, and uh, yeah, just really see it as a as a long term opportunity. So we've uh, set up a team and an office in in los angeles and and uh setting up the business for for a long-term
0: success wow how many people employed at the company now
7: so far 12 in america um 75 across the globe so uh, we have also have offices in uh, in shanghai and in sydney and melbourne so and with
0: so much product going to the states now have you had to increase you know the the base of you know your source material the inputs
7: uh, well, absolutely. So none of that sort of uh, accelerated growth had been forecasted. So we ne- really needed to call on all of our farmers and and suppliers, and and you know it certainly couldn't have been done if we didn't have our own manufacturing uh, facility down in down in uh, Victoria in Dandenong South. So we've we've uh, been really operating there at full capacity, um, which is three shifts a day, 24/7, for the first few months to get that um, the, to get that product. Uh, produced. And and now we're just continuing to bring forward our
0: forecast to supply that demand. And what about suppliers? Where are you drawing from now?
7: Um, So still all of our long-term supply partners, um, many of whom are based in in Victoria from our um, dairy farmers, Um, but we work with uh, Australia's Three largest dairy manufacturing um, companies actually: uh, Fonterra, uh, Borra and, and Bega. Um And we have, because we have three ranges of uh, infant formula products um, across three different milk sources: uh, organic goat milk and A2 protein um, milk as well. So, um, you know, we've we've not only sort of diversified our markets, but we've also diversified our, our product portfolio offering, which is very uh, helpful during these times where where supply chain is, um, you know, is is challenging. And that was Christy Carr speaking there with David Claughton. The awards were handed
1: out by the Australian Trade and Investment Commission and the Australian Chamber of Commerce. Now, from infant formula to a very special sort of adult formula, and also a finalist in the National Export Awards. Ross Mace is the founder of the business Larenny Estate Distilling uh, up there near Ooze, and we're uh, calling you, Ross. You're you're up there at the moment.
10: Yes, Fiona, I am um, making whiskey and gin. (laughs) A Uh,
1: A bit different to the winner who took out the main prize, Infant Formula.
10: It is, but isn't it humbling to be there with those people,
1: yeah, amazing uh, candidates that were in those uh, different categories, and you were in the uh, section devoted to businesses that are located in the regions now Lorenia state distilling, as I mentioned, is up there near Ooze in the south of the state it's not always easy doing business in the regions, is it uh ross
10: mace no it's it's not um getting staff for a start. And really that's where your business uh, succeeds or fails on the standard of the staff. We've been very, very lucky. Um, we're an hour and a quarter from Hobart and that's um, to get staff of quality to come out and work long hours. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, not easy and it's a credit to the staff to take it on.
1: And tell me, how do you go with freighting and things like that, getting your your whiskies and gins and and vodkas out there um, when you're in somewhere like, well, the Dewant Valley, the Upper Dewant Valley there?
10: Um, Another challenge, but we've got um, TAS Freight. I mean, I guess it all comes down, you can get product, you can get freight, you've just got to pay more for it.
1: Now, you've got a beautiful product. You're doing whiskies, but, uh, and you're, you live in a, a beautiful part of the state in an old, old uh, homestead there. But the whiskey, it's, it's a real commitment, isn't it? How's that going?
10: Um, I'm going to say slowly. <laughs> well,
1: that's probably good if you're a whiskey drinker to hear that. Yeah.
10: Um, it's the maturation period um, – is quite lengthy. Um, Smaller the barrel, the quicker it matures. We have been lucky enough to uh, have two small releases to date, one two years ago, Um, and they've both been very successful. They've only been 2000 bottles in each one. Dissension, which was our first one, uh, sorry, was our second one, our current one, won gold in London, and the Ascension, which was our first one, won silver at the World Whiskey Awards in London.
1: And you're obviously on the right track. Now, when I came up there a couple of years ago, you were growing barley to go in your whiskey. Uh, I presume that whiskey's is all still in the kegs, in the yes, keg, in the barrel.
10: It is. Um we, we've been growing and we're supplying from the farm. We're supplying all our barley now for all our different whiskies. Uh, so that's, that's been great uh, to be able to do that on a world stage. Um, so we've got our, our barley here. Uh, the water comes out of the Derwent River, which is 300 metres from the back of our distillery. Um, and then yeast, and that's the basis of whiskey really barley water and yeast and yeah.
1: so bottle uh, paddock to bottle,
10: pretty much pretty much yeah
1: and how are you going because as you said it's a big commitment um it takes up to depending on the on the barrel up to seven seven years you have whiskey in the barrel, depending on its size uh you're 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 not in your thirties, so how are you finding it
10: um this was to be my small retirement hobby and it's got completely out of hand. Um, now, look, it's exciting. It's its a really exciting time worldwide to be involved in the distilling industry. The industry itself, whiskey and gin, is has a value of over $200 billion worldwide annually. And there's a a real shift today away from the standard whiskies to the new world products like your Irish, uh, Japanese, and Tasmania is in a magnificent spot to uh, progress on that.
1: Well, Ross Mace, these were export awards. Where are you exporting some of your uh, products to?
10: In. 2021, we were awarded the Tasmanian Emerging uh, Exporter of the Year for our efforts in the UK, China and Hong Kong, primarily. Uh, this year, uh, again, in Tassie, we got the regional award, but mainly focused on Europe and Singapore, Asia.
1: Fantastic. Well, as those... Uh... Whiskies come out of the barrel over the next few years. I'm sure, you know, that will expand further.
10: Yes, look, our our first release, main release out of 100-litre barrels, um, that will really give us an indication as to where we're going. But again, with our staff, with Joe Dinsmore, our head distiller, he consistently shows that he's producing product of a high- standard worldwide um
1: okay ross ross mace we'll have to leave it there time to go to the news headlines but thanks so much for for joining the country hour and congratulations for reaching the finals of those national export awards for uh businesses in a regional area
10: thank you fiona
1: Time now for the ABC News headlines and Early warning.
11: Thanks, Fiona. The Albanese government says it will accept all six recommendations made in the three-month inquiry into Scott Morrison's secret ministerial appointments during the pandemic. The Bell inquiry has confirmed Mr Morrison fundamentally undermined the government by secretly appointing himself as joint minister to five additional portfolios without the knowledge of most ministers involved. Former High Court Justice Virginia Bell has found the secrecy around the appointments was apt to undermine public confidence and corrosive of trust in government. A man in his 20s from Hobart has died in a single vehicle crash at Runnymede in the state's southeast. Police say a ute was driving north on the Tasman Highway about 8.30 this morning when it left the road and crashed. A parliamentary inquiry will investigate the state government's funding of election grants. For months the government's been under increasing scrutiny over how it gives out grants at election time with examples of some MPs giving funds to groups where there's perceived conflict of interest. Full bulletin at one.
1: Time now to head to the Weather Bureau and I think we've got Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. Matthew, you've come out of somewhere. You haven't talked to you for ages.
12: I've spent a, a lot of time um, doing forecasting for various other teams um, over the last year or so, including the Antarctic team.
1: Oh, fantastic. Were you down in the Antarctic or you were just doing some of the hard yards for them?
12: I briefly went down on the the voyage of the Noyena actually to Davis and Macquarie Island oh, earlier this year.
1: That would have been a, an experience to say the least.
12: It was quite um, enjoyable. I think um, you were on a voyage with me down to Macquarie Island in 2015 from memory. Oh, and, and you know we- how beautiful it it yeah, is.
1: It is. It is fantastic. If anyone gets the chance to go and work down in some of those those places in the Antarctic or Macquarie Island, now Matthew Thomas, I'll, I'll get to the weather. Has there been much rainfall about?
12: Look, we have seen some um, some rain to 9am, to mainly about the um, the west of the state, but also about the northeast. So we did see. Um, around um, two to five millimetres about parts of the upper east and the northeast of the state. Um, the, the higher amounts were about the, the west of the state where there was generally um, um, five to, to ten millimetres.
1: OK, Matthew. And what about the outlook? What can we expect?
12: Well, we've got a cold front that's um, approaching the, the state and it's going to move over um, the state or it currently is moving over the, the west of the, the state. And we have seen some showers um, um, since nine a m about the west of the state, but also some just falling um, about the lower east as well, um, and amounts there have generally been less than five millimeters but those um, showers will continue um, today, so we will see um, so we'll see those showers just continue into the, the west of the state but also um, through the the southern and central parts and just pushing up the east coast and so we 'll see around five to ten millimeters um, about the um, the west today, less than five millimetres elsewhere. Very little getting through to the north coast. It'll um, it'll largely remain dry along the um, the, the north coast. Um, and in terms of um, the um, the outlooks, um, as that um, cold front moves away, we'll see a um, a high pressure system just build um, over the the state tomorrow, and the stream tend um, northerly fairly quickly um, tomorrow. And that, um, and we'll, See, um, the, the showers ease back and we'll start off with a, a, um, a dry day for, for most of the state um, but some showers developing about the west into the afternoon um, and then increasing in the evening and, and pushing through the, the, the northwest um, across to the, the, the central north and um, we're looking at around 5 to 10 millimetres about the, the northwest and the west of the state but given that it's going to be quite a, a late extension of those showers to um, remaining districts about the, the central north, the east and into the southeast, we should see less than um, two millimetres. But um, warming up a little bit from the, the fairly cold temperatures that we've, um, we've seen, slightly below average temperatures that we have seen um, recently, um, tomorrow with that northerly stream. Um, but then the cold front will um, cross, another cold front will cross on Sunday morning, very early on Sunday morning. And we'll see um, statewide showers um, early on Sunday, but they should um, ease during the morning, um, particularly about central um, and eastern parts of the state and contract largely back to the west of the state um, as a westerly stream pushes through. So um, about the, the east coast um, into the afternoon and evening, there won't be terribly much in the way of showers on um, on Sunday. Um, and. And about the north, it'll be fairly um, fairly light showers after that um, change pushes through. But we're looking at around 5 to 10 millimetres about the west and the north. And that um, precipitation about the north on Sunday will largely be in the early morning. Um, but less than 5 millimetres elsewhere um, about the, the state. Um, and then on um, Monday, another cold front to push into the um, and cross the state, um, once again, most of the precipitation into the west of the state, with 10 to 20 millimetres there, but generally less than five millimetres elsewhere. And given how westerly it is, very little getting through to the east coast um, on Monday, um, and um, fairly um, fairly vigorous um, westerly stream with that. And um, and. The MS should cool once again, and we'll see the snow um, possible about the, um, the higher peaks. And then on um, Tuesday, just a, an easing in that westerly stream with most of the precipitation on, Wednesday, on Tuesday and Wednesday about the west of the state, with around 5 to 15 millimetres each day about the west of the state, but less than 2 millimetres um, elsewhere, particularly over farming districts, and very little getting through to the east coast on um, Tuesday and Wednesday.
1: I'll be happy about that. Are there any warnings?
12: Look, we do have um, some warnings. So we do have a a strong wind warning that is um, that is current for um, for northern and uh, where are we? For northern coastal waters between um, Stanley and St Helen's Point um, for today, excluding Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. And then for tomorrow, there is a gale warning current for western coastal waters. between South East Cape and Sandy Cape for north to northwesterly winds and a strong wind warning current for um, northwestern coastal waters between Sandy Cape and Stanley, and for eastern coastal waters between the northern tip of Flinders Island and South East Cape.
1: Any more on coastal waters and swell?
12: Okay, so just looking at the um, the, the coastal um, waters for the uh, for today, we're looking at. Um, The west to southwesterly winds of 10 to 20 knots, um, but tending um, more southwesterly through the the day and increasing to 20 to 30 knots offshore about the central north and the northeast um, through this afternoon. But the winds will um, ease to around 10 knots about the west in the evening as that ridge of high pressure pushes in. Into Saturday, we'll see variable winds to 15 knots. Um, in the early morning, but then tending um, northerly at 10 to 15 knots around dawn. But the winds will then increase through the the morning, getting up to 20 to 30 knots about the west and 10 to 20 knots about remaining waters. And we'll see a continual increase of the winds through um, Saturday, getting up to 20 to 30 knots during the afternoon and evening about most waters, but reaching 35 knots about the west. Um, in terms of the swells, around the west and the south we're looking at a, um, a west to southwesterly of two to um, two and a half metres but that should decay back to one and a half to two metres um, through um, tomorrow. And then as the change moves through on Sunday, tend westerly at three and a half to four metres during the day. About the north, a westerly below one metre. About the east we've got a... Um, a, um, a southerly of, um, of one metre, and I did have the wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel somewhere, and that's at, uh, currently on two and a half metres with a maximum wave of 3.8 metres um, and a 10-second period.
1: Fantastic. Well done on your first, first one back that I've, I've been involved in anyway. For a anyway. while, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you going to be around for a while, Matthew Thomas?
12: Yes, I will be.
1: Okay, we'll catch you again. Thanks very much.
12: No worries. Bye. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're
0: with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Now, we've all heard the troubling stories of farmers dumping fruit and veggies because they can't be sold, or they can't find pickers, or the food doesn't meet supermarket specifications. It's estimated that a quarter of all food grown is wasted before it even leaves a farm. But the CSIRO has been working with Australian startup company to turn that waste into healthy, crunchy snacks, as David Claughton reports
0: nutra first processing module is located on the farm of their parent company, Fresh Select. That's one of Australia's largest brassica growers and a long-term coal supplier. The waste cauliflowers, broccoli and pumpkins are picked and sorted in the mornings, washed and then dried and turned into powder, which is used to make the snacks all on the same day. I met nutri CEO Raquel Saide at the CSIRO's Ag Catalyst event in Sydney, where she explained more about the concept.
13: nutri is a food manufacturing business, but essentially what we're trying to do is take food waste from our partner farm, which taking all of the vegetables that can't be harvested um, and turning them into high-nutrient vegetable powders, and those powders are now the star ingredient in our uh, Nutri-V goodies snack. So something that would otherwise have gone to waste is now being repurposed into a food that Australians can enjoy.
0: Right. And... There's a lot of waste, isn't there? Like, and that's a big business. Are, they're supp- yeah. supplying coals. So they're doing thousands of tonnes, I imagine, every year. How, what's the waste stat from that operation? Yes,
13: yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, just pure waste, there can be you know, up to about 15 tonnes a week of waste matter. Um, that's excess leaves, stalks. Um, it can be from a, an oversupply. It can be weather damage. Sometimes they're just out of spec, too big, too small. That's um, a large number of waste that we're, we're dealing with.
0: It's been a heartbreaking problem, hasn't it? We've seen uh, fruit and vegetable dumped all around the country for yeah, all sorts of reasons.
13: That's right, that's and right.
0: And so this maybe could provide a solution to that problem.
13: That's right and you know if you were only in Melbourne a couple of days ago you would have noticed that we got a large amount of hail in spring. That kind of environmental impact can cause a lot of damage it's real, it's there you know. Those crops will be damaged, they will probably be rejected because they you know they don't look a certain way or they've been um, impacted so it's a real life example of how we can be taking that produce um, it might not sound sexy, vegetable powders but let me tell you we're making an impact and we're able to make a difference to farm and to Australians, so I think it's a good initiative to get behind.
0: So what do these snacks made from waste food taste like? I asked a couple of people at the conference.
13: <laughs> wow,
0: that's crunchy.
3: Very crunchy.
0: And it looks more like a, like a breakfast cereal almost, or a twisty but brown.
3: Yeah. Nice bite sizes. Very crunchy. Yeah. I like
13: them. Oh, really? They taste like, um, have you ever had those uh, bean snaps? Mm. Like very similar, but yeah. like quite sweet in comparison.
0: So this is um, created from waste stuff on the farm that doesn't meet specs or there's no market. So they, they grind it up, dry it, turn it into a snack like that and deliver it to the supermarket the same day. So is that, is that appealing?
3: It's very cool. I like that. I like not wasting food.
0: Andrew Lawrence from the CSIRO was involved in testing and proving up the equipment to grind up and dry the vegetables, before handing it to NutraVe to commercialise. He says there's a big health advantage in snacks produced from powdered
14: vegetables. What the NutraVe goodies actually bring along is those two servings of, of vegetables in each pack. So, why fresh is best, um, you know, this is an easy, an easy way to, to consume those vegetables.
0: Dr. Michael Robertson is the director of CSIRO Agriculture and Food, which has been working with a number of startup companies on new ideas in agriculture.
10: It's a beautiful example um, of uh, us turning what would be waste into a high value product. So it's a really lovely example of how agriculture is getting more and more conscious about recycling and reducing its environmental footprint. But not only that, it also is a great example of how we can use our pilot plant to help startups like Raquel's test the technology prove that it works, and then take it into their own business and scale it. Meanwhile, Raquel
0: Said is planning the next stage of the project, which is about scaling up the business.
13: The uh, initial idea was the plant that we had in Werribee South was almost our sort of um, feeder and testing plant to see is this concept actually viable. We understand that that salad bowl region in Victoria isn't the only waste issue uh, catchment area. It's a problem all across Australia, right? So if uh, the fact that it's working now, we've got plans to actually put drying hubs across different growing areas of Australia and we think that could really make an impact farmers all across Australia.
0: How much this equipment will cost on-farm is not clear yet, but consumers can taste the snacks now as they're being distributed through Coles.
1: And if you want to find out a little bit more about that story, jump onto our ABC Rural web page and there's a story there about how they're converting farm food waste into veggie snacks. Now, a pioneer of the organic wine industry in New Zealand has urged Tasmanian wine grape growers to turn their vineyards into organic operations. Bart Anst was awarded the New Zealand Winemaker of the Year for 2022. And during a recent visit, to Hobart, he told reporter Madeleine Rojan that there are some very good reasons why Tasmanian Tasmanian wineries should take up organic practices.
14: You know, the consumer now is very aware of the environment and uh, there's an understanding that a lot of chemistries that have been allowed in the past are probably not going to be available in the future. Um, So even it's trying to, you know, reduce their footprint on the planet, but also, there's a growing awareness that you know the top wines, many of the top wines in the world, are organic and biodynamic. Um, and so, if you're aspiring to to make a really quality product, it's almost now becoming a given that that's the route you need to go down.
3: And in New Zealand, there's only five percent certified organic wines, but there's a a whole another amount of organic wines that aren't certified. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference in those two things and, and what, are the, what are the challenges? Why, why aren't people certifying themselves?
14: One of the reasons I think is that a lot of people growing grapes as a business are not that concerned about the future. It's more about making as much money in a short span. And there is a perception and, and depending on soil type, it's correct uh, that you won't yield as much. So often people view yield and, and dollar signs And so if they drop their yield, their income comes down. Maybe they're servicing a massive debt, you know. But if you're looking at making quality wine, high yielding regardless of whether you're operating um, with synthetic chemistry or not, uh, you're not going to make the best wine. So I think there is a real focus within the organic, biodynamic community that they want to make really good wine, and therefore it's a good good avenue.
3: There's the incentive of producing a high quality of wine, and then there's The environmental incentive, but are there many financial incentives for organic wine producers?
14: Well, I think once you lift the quality of your wine, you can quite rightly lift the price of your bottle. It then comes with a genuine story, which consumers like. And what I think you're really aiming for is repeat buyers. You're not after that buyer that just goes in and buys what's on special. You, You want to produce something that someone drinks and goes, wow, I want to have this again.
3: And talking about the environmental policies in New Zealand, you said that up to 50% of synthetic chemicals that are available now are likely to be withdrawn within five years. Do many growers in this industry feel like they have to be on the front foot considering this policy change? I
14: think so, and I mean, this is just information that I've heard But, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that if we're exporting, you know, we're an export dominant nation, so we're making more than what we can consume locally, obviously with the wine side. If we're to be using products and sprays, chemistry that other countries have now banned, then that becomes a, a trade barrier. And so they could quite rightly say, well, we're not letting our growers use these products. How come you guys are still using them? So... I think consistent more constantly those that uh, are in the you know in, in charge of what chemistry should be available and allowable to be used are looking at you know what's happening offshore it's sort of it's sort of a little bit ironic that you can you know today you're sustainable but two days time you may not be because something you've been using today is now no longer deemed to be sustainable so you can't use it so I think we all have to be front-footing this and just go like okay what products are out there that are deemed to be negative to environmental and human health and let's get rid of them
3: and and with globalization i I guess that that means that the standards are rising together globally do you find that that happens quite
14: quickly i think so i think um you know wine is is me saying this wine is not necessary for life you know it is It's a luxury item, so if you treat it poorly and if you have a very bad environmental footprint, then there's a heap of other things people can drink out there. The world doesn't revolve around wine, although some of us might like to think so. There's an opportunity here, a lot of the growers are talking about you know, funding for machinery that's necessary for organic growing and that maybe a collective can be formed and, and they could buy gear together and then and utilise it over a larger area instead of, you know, one set of equipment for four hectares doesn't make sense, but if it's 30 hectares over four different properties, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'd encourage all the all those interested to get together, as we did in New Zealand. We formed Organic Wine Growers New Zealand 15 years ago. We've got a really strong voice in the industry. Maybe, you know, Tasmanian growers need to do something similar because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of knowledge out there, a lot of brains and there's always someone popping up with a really good suggestion that you might be able to run with. I guess you've just got to refrain, and not that I've seen it here at all, but I know it happens. Um, once once you take that organic journey or that biodynamic journey, don't be holier than thou. You know, be encouraging, because and, and, there's a lot of people out there that would really like to know an alternative way of doing things, and that they just don't have access to that information or, or someone to chat to.
1: New Zealand Winemaker of the Year for 2022, Bart Ants, talking to Madeline Rojan about Tasmania's vignerons turning to organic practices.
7: This week on landline farming off the grid.
4: We use
0: roughly about 17,000 kilowatts uh, of energy a year, uh, which equates to you know, four and a half, five thousand dollars, you know, electricity cost that we save every year.
11: And celebrating the work of country creators. I think it's about making something and sharing it with other people, and it brings people together. That's Landline Sunday 12:30
7: on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
0: Keeping you updated every day, the Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen.
1: We've heard about veggie waste going into snacks rather than being thrown out. Now a wallaby meat business has found the perfect product for its waste skins. The business in Launceston is making Ugg boots from tens of thousands of wallaby skins that normally go into landfill each year. Madeleine Rojan spoke to John Kelly at Lena Game Meats.
2: The department was offering redundancies and changing directions and I didn't want to go where they were going so I put my hand up and set up Lena.
3: You've actually been doing it for almost 30 years now. What was the Wallaby industry like when you started?
2: Well, there wasn't one. We, we, we were the first people to process Wallaby for the restaurant and retail trade. We were the first people to call it Wallaby. Now, 30-odd years later, we're we're processing nearly 50,000 wallaby a year and and all up we're worth about 25 or 30 jobs.
3: When you started, what were the attitudes like to eating wallaby and how have you seen that changed over the years?
2: Back then, a a fairly common reaction, I guess, was people saying, ''Oh, yuck, you can't eat that!'' (laughs) But now when we do food fairs, we, we get 16-year-old girls making a beeline out of the crowd to come and get a fix of wallaby. So it's tra- changed dramatically, and wallaby is now a highly regarded part of the Tasmanian food basket.
3: Because it's a lot more environmentally friendly, as I understand?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the appeal of our product for a lot of people. I mean, wallabies, for example, don't emit methane. You know, I can't think of much that makes greater environmental wisdom than us producing our food from the animals which belong in this land and to which and you know, which are adapted to this land.
3: And you've got a new product on the menu as well. What was that? It's a little bit different to eating wallaby though.
2: Yeah, so we've expanded out into the fashion trade this year. We the hardest thing for us to sell have been our wallaby skins. And and to date we've been throwing most of them discarding most of them in landfill uh, and that really has been breaking our heart and and so we launched on our on the market our wallaby fur ugg boots which in a moment of marketing brilliance we call wugs
3: <laughs> and how do they how do they differ from sheep skin ugg boots which is the traditional one yeah.
2: So they're essentially the same boots, it's just that made out of wallaby fur and leather rather than sheep. But they are a very, very different product. We've had work done by RMIT, which has shown several things. Um, you know, firstly, wallaby leather is incredibly strong compared to sheep's leather, so we expect these boots to wear much better than sheep leather. It's also more waterproof. And and sh- and shrink resistant than sheep leather, but a really great thing about them is they've de- they've demonstrated that the the open nature of the wallaby fur allows heat to dissipate through the boot rather than trapping it all at the bottom of the boot. So what people have been this backs up what our customers have been telling us for a long time that in in wugs you don't sweat like you do in Uggs, so you don't get wound up with that stinky, smelly, sweaty Ug Ug boot. It's, it maintains a, a, a very pleasant feel.
3: And how much wastage do you think you'll be minimising with the introduction of this new product?
2: Well, we we hope that eventually we'll, all of our skins will go into this, um, which will save us having to throw the things out and make us a lot happier and, 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 and the people at the tip a lot happier, I guess, as well. Maybe in a few years' time I'll be a fashion producer rather than a meat producer. I'm not quite sure how I'll cope with that, but we'll see.
1: And that was John Kelly at Game Meets ending that report. Now, it's that time of the week again for our Friday Livestock Report. Good afternoon, Richard Bailey.
15: Good afternoon, Fiona. Isn't that a great story? That, that <laughs> yes. whole, whole story is a, a, a terrific thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: using the skins and, and coming up with a great product, by the sounds of it.
15: Yeah, and like he's been around for a fair while and they've done a terrific job.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, Richard, now tell me, how's the livestock markets at the moment? How's the cattle?
15: Well, feature was yesterday. We went down to Piranha, uh, over 2,400 cattle, which is a big. A big store sale for Tassie. Um, and, the, and obviously, the cattle are starting to improve pretty quickly as far as they're losing their coats, and uh, they were in pretty good order. The market was strong. I think there was a bit of doom and gloom to start with, whether how it would be, because over the water they've been coming back a little bit. But they sold very, very well. And just as an example, uh, yearling, uh, heavy yearling steers, 1960 to $2,600, or 535 cents a kilo, medium weights, Um, 17.80 to 22.40 to average 580 cents and then your lighter... Anywhere from 1,700 to 2,200 to average just shy of 700 cents a kilo, but there were plenty of the little little calves that only they were sort of anywhere from eight to nine hundred dollars in places. So uh, $800 to $900, $800 to $900, <laughs> eight to nine hundred dollars, eight to nine hundred cents in in places. Um, heifers, better heifers, uh, 2,040 to 2,100 to average 500 cents. Middle weights uh, 1540 to 2020 to average 15, uh, 515 cents. And lighter 1340 to $1,880 a head to average 570 cents. So a very good day, um, I think, all around. And I, I think that probably the buyers, although they would have liked to have bought them a little bit cheaper, I reckon they ended up, most of them end up pretty happy with what they bought.
1: Fantastic. And what about the sheep and lamb market?
15: Okay, uh, sheep and lamb markets um, have been remarkable this week. They actually have held up, and particularly for lambs, heavy lambs, over 26 kilos. Um, numbers started to climb. We uh, ended up at 21,000 at, 21, at, at Hamilton on Wednesday, which is up 15,000. And as we all know, from now on, we suddenly start to get up to 50 or 60,000 at Hamilton in Western Victoria. And at Wagga yesterday, 32,000 lambs, and they quoted their heavy lambs at least fully firm with plenty of the, the lambs over 26 kilos, you know, anywhere from 850 to 900 cents a kilo, which is colossal money for this time of the year. But then when you got into your trade-weight lambs, you were very quickly down to sort of around 800 cents. Um, still good money, but uh, there is quite a big difference between the, the big lambs and the little lambs. A lot of secondary lambs because of the cold and wet conditions. Mutton market's just struggling along. Um, it was sort of all over the place this week and it depended which market you went to. But a lot, of, it takes a pretty good sheep, you know, to, to make 130 or $40 at the moment. So um, that's just the way the mutton job is at the moment, Fiona.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay, Richard Bailey, thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again on Wednesday.
15: Good on you, Fiona.
1: Now, if you get a chance, make sure you have a look at our ABC Rural webpage. Just on uh, cattle, there's a cow there that is sold, a Highland cow, though, so quite unusual one. A Victorian Highland cattle breeder has sold a 14 month heifer for what could be what could be a world record price of sixty seven thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, Glenn Hastie has bred the Highland cows in Gisborne for 26 years and has never seen such demand for the heritage breed. Another little bit of information Ausveg Australia's peak industry body for the vegetable and potato industries has welcomed the appointment of some new directors, including Queensland vegetable and onion grower Andrew Moon from Moonrocks and Tasmanian vegetable grower. Mark Cable from Harvest Moon. We will catch you again on Monday at 12.
7: Technology. When you're talking about pioneering when you're talking about world first economics. All
13: sectors apart from oil and gas. Humanity. I need to make
6: the Choose your news from
0: ABC Radio Hobart.
13: abc.net.au/hobart.